0: Well, we're entering into a season in many of our lives where there will be many weddings. And I just came from one last weekend, that's why I was not with you all. And I'm going to another one this Friday with, as I mentioned this morning, Joey and Alex getting married on Friday in Minnesota. Uh, this this week I sent out premarriage counseling materials to three couples in our church who are wanting to pursue marriage, so tis the season for all kinds of weddings and marriages, and it just so happens, not because of my plan, but because this is just where we're at in the next part of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's going to talk to us a little bit about marriage and more particularly divorce. When I have had the privilege, and I've had a number of privileges of officiating at weddings, one of the most common stories I have told, so this For those of you that have been at weddings I've performed, you've maybe heard this before, but it's about the story of B.B. Warfield. Uh, B.B. Warfield, if you've ever heard about him, it would be because you know him to be an intellectual giant, Uh, a, a writer of deep theological books, a former professor at Princeton University. And this was back in the day in the 1920s and 30s when Princeton was this amazing, and I'm not saying it's terrible now per se, but theologically, it was one of the best theological institutions in America. And B.B. Warfield was one of his elite scholars that had an incredible amount of um, fruitfulness. What most people don't know about B.B. Warfield was that at the age of 25, he married his Sweetheart Annie Pierce. And as they went away happily ever after on their honeymoon in Germany, Annie was struck by lightning and paralyzed permanently. And I share that story to people on their wedding day. Aren't I so kind and loving? And the reason I do is because it seems to me that looking at the life of B.V. Warfield, what he does next is one of the better illustrations of biblical love, covenant faithfulness, and Christ-like commitment. What would you do if you were 25 years old, you just got married, you're on your honeymoon, and your spouse gets paralyzed? Would any of you be honest enough to be willing to say, you might be tempted to say, Is there any way out of this? This is a long road. It's going to be challenging. I'm going to really have to sacrifice. When I said for better or for worse, I wasn't thinking this. Maybe sickness every once in a while, but a lifetime of paralyzation with my spouse. Do any of you in this room think, you know, B.B. Warfield, that's... That's a terrible spot. Don't you have sympathy for him? I mean, surely for her, but what about for him? Does does he have good grounds to just leave his wife and find another one that's not paralyzed? I would imagine many people around our world today would say, absolutely. He shouldn't be trapped in a marriage like that. So what did B.B. Warfield do? for over 40 years, tirelessly cared for his wife. And it said that her physical needs were so great that he never left her side for more than two hours for those 40-plus years of marriage. That's why I share that story. Because if that's not an illustration and a picture of biblical covenant Jesus love, then I don't know what is. And so what we're going to talk about is having that kind of commitment in our marriages, and this is what I think Jesus is pointing us to in his message in Matthew. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 can be found on page 810 in the black Bibles in front of you. We're going to look at two verses in the Sermon on the Mount, but I also want, in terms of our outline this morning, so we're going to begin just right away, we're going to start our first point with what does Jesus say about divorce? We're going to read our two verses, but I don't want to just stop there. I want to also turn our attention to all the other times Jesus talks about divorce, because honestly, the teaching on divorce in the Bible is not that long. There are a few passages of Scripture from Jesus, another one from Paul that we'll look at, and then there are two in all of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There's two that relate to the issue of marriage and divorce in the Old Testament, Two commandments of the law, per se. And we'll consider both of those, because there's just not that many. What's so interesting is, is such a, a short amount of teaching and so much controversy and so much emotion and so much pain and difficulty. So before I read these texts, and we dive into our first point, which is just what does Jesus say about divorce? We're just going to really start out by just reading them. I want to read this quotation from John Stott. He's a former pastor for a long time. He was a single man that preached the gospel for a long time in London, England. He's gone to, to be with the Lord and passed away, but he said this in his commentary as he's teaching on Matthew. And he says, I confess to a reluctance to attempt on teaching on Jesus' verses in Matthew 5. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage. And almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship full of bitterness, discord, and despair. Stott continues, Although I believe that God's way, in most cases, is not for divorce, I hope I will write now with sensitivity, for I know there is great pain which many suffer. And so I do not wish to add to their distress. But yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this subject is good. It is intrinsically good. It is good for you as the individual. It is good for our society. And so I take up the courage in my hand and I write on. I think he said it better than I could have. My hope is to not add to any of your pain. My hope is to teach the goodness of what Jesus has for us, and I do believe it is good, and my hope and prayer is we will see it as well. So first, what does Jesus say about divorce? Let's see our first passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is our first teaching we get from Jesus. It's the one that continues through this section. If you notice, as we've seen the pattern, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, now there's discussion. Is Jesus giving a third thing here? Or is he continuing what he was just talking about, about adultery in the previous section? it was also said, like I'm continuing the thought on adultery and adding another way that adultery happens when a man divorces his wife and makes her commit adultery, and anybody who marries a divorced woman, they're committing adultery. And I think that it could go either way. It could be a continuation of the last section or a complete own unit of thought, but notice that he doesn't quote from the Ten Commandments. He quotes from the passage that I just read to us, Deuteronomy 24, the certificate of divorce is that reference that I said you, you got to understand Deuteronomy 24 if you understand Jesus so now let's turn in our Bibles and let's see the next passage Matthew chapter 19 Matthew 19 was also read for you earlier in the service and so I just want to make a few brief highlights rather than read the whole thing for this one But in Matthew chapter 19, there is a longer section, and I think this helps further explain Matthew 5, 31, and 32. You get two verses in the Sermon on the Mount. If you really want to know what Jesus thinks about divorce and remarriage issues, this is actually, I think, the bigger, broader context of the ongoing discussion. So notice verses 1 and 2. Jesus was talking, and he was in Galilee, and then look, there was crowds, and he healed people. Verse 3. There were Pharisees that came up, and it looks like they have uh, an agenda, doesn't it? They're testing Jesus, and they're testing him with a question that was extremely controversial. Now, can any of you imagine living in a day where the issue of marriage and what it is and issues revolving around marriage and gender might be controversial? And then if you were to throw out a question to a pastor and say, hey, what do you think about this? They'd be like, whoa, that's a loaded question. Well, hopefully you could imagine a day like that. We live in one like that, right? So was Jesus' day, but it was more specific. It wasn't just about the definition of marriage. It was about the issue of how you interpret Deuteronomy 24. And so they asked their loaded question. Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that is them taking one side of the debate. One side of the debate, as we're going to see in just a moment, is more like you can divorce for any reason and another a little more restrictive. And so they're asking Jesus, which side are you on? What's Jesus' answer? Verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Pause. Did Jesus answer their question? Well, kind of, yes, but not directly, more indirectly. And that's one of the things I want to point out this morning as we get to our next point. But just notice that they ask a particular question about Deuteronomy 24. And he says, wrong question, guys. You're missing it. You need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 if you want to have a conversation first about marriage and divorce. You start where the Bible starts with the foundations. And God originally designed for man and woman to be together and let no man separate what God has joined together. That's verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And so if you just stopped there, you would say, okay, that's Jesus' answer. No divorce, no remarriage under any circumstance whatsoever. God joined them together? Let no man ever separate what God joins together. Then verse 7, they ask a follow-up question. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So now we, again, are back into Deuteronomy 24, certificate of divorce language that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus responds and says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, notice the difference of word, they say command, Jesus says, no, no, he allowed divorce because of your hardness of heart, because of sin, because of the situation you were in, not because this was God's best from the beginning it was not so the best intention is genesis 1 and 2 not deuteronomy 24 verse 9 so then i say to you whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and that sounds very similar to what we just read in the sermon on the mount right if you divorce your wife then you except for sexual immorality same phrase and marry another, this is adultery. And then there's a little section about eunuchs, which is maybe a teaching for when we get there in a couple years, but it is an important teaching about Jesus talking about basically a life of singleness. And this is one of the places where if you're a single, I would encourage you to make sure you hone in on these verses 10, 11, and 12, because Jesus as a single man is gonna talk about the goodness of being single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that marriage is not ultimate is one way to take away from these points. Let's move to our next text. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12. So this is page 845 in the Black Bibles. And what you're going to notice is going to sound very similar, but I want to notice want you to notice one detail that's very significant mark 10 notice there's a similar similar setting jesus is in judea beyond the jordan crowds were gathering and it was his custom he was teaching and then look at verse 2 the pharisees came up to him in order to test him is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife jesus answers verse 3 what did moses command you verse 4 they said moses allowed A man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. A lot of this sounds really familiar so far, right? Now, notice the one huge difference in verses 10 and 11. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Did you notice what was left out in Mark's rendering account of this? It does not say except for sexual immorality. It just says if you divorce your wife, and marry someone else, that is adultery. It doesn't say whoever divorces his wife except for the case of sexual immorality. It just says, divorce your wife, that is adultery. You marry a divorced woman, that's adultery. She marries someone else, that's adultery. End of the sentence. One more teaching from Jesus Luke 16, 18. Luke 16, 18. So you've seen Matthew's gospel. Twice, divorce and remarriage comes up. Both instances, you see this exception clause, except for the case of sexual immorality. Very similar teachings in Matthew and then in Mark, except without the exception clause. In Luke's gospel, you have one verse, one what seems to be odd place for divorce and remarriage in the flow of thought. But here it is. Luke 16, verse 18, on page 876. Everyone who divorces his wife, And marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. No exception clause. No other background. No other information. That's it. If all you had was Luke's gospel, woof. It's not a lot to work with, right? So you should be thankful that we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And furthermore, you should be thankful that this is not the only other passage on divorce and remarriage. But in fact, it seems like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so let's turn there. This is the last one we'll look at in this point. 1 Corinthians 7. You're going to notice Paul talk about, I give you this, but not I, but the Lord. And what I believe he's doing here is actually quoting what we just read in Matthew and mark and luke in other words you're going to see paul the apostle as the church is getting formed teach on jesus teaching and give even one more explanation about divorce and remarriage and we're going to start in verse 6. first corinthians chapter 7 verse 6. now as a concession not a command i say this i wish that all were as i myself am and most people make that to mean He's a single man. He could have been always single or he could have had his wife pass away or maybe he's divorced. We don't know. All we know is that he talks about himself as being a single man that's currently not married as he's writing this. And he's saying, I wish that all of you were single like I am. Which should be startling, especially for current day church cultures that prize marriage in a good way, but almost in an idolatrous way, and don't see the beauty of singleness. Do you see how countercultural that is even in churches today? Well, it is ten times more countercultural in the early church. Let's keep reading. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you have your own gift from God, one of one kind and one from another, meaning, Whichever situation you're in, you can call it a gift. Some of you have a gift of singleness. How do you know if you have the gift of singleness? It's because you're single right now. Some of you are married right now. Do you know if you have the gift of singleness? You do not. You have the gift of marriage. This is not like some sort of, well, I had this moment with Jesus in prayer, and I felt he just gave me this gift, and it was called singleness. That does not exist, I don't think. You could maybe make a commitment or decision that for the sake of the kingdom of God, based on Matthew 19, or even as you read 1 Corinthians 7, if you read the whole chapter, say, no, I just I want to choose to be single. That's a good life. It is okay to just be single. I don't need to be asked every time I go to church that I'm single. Hey, when are you going to get married? Hey, any guys? Any girls? What, what's going on? What's the problem? As if something's wrong with that person. There's nothing wrong with a single person. So church, start thinking about how this applies to you and us in our conversations. Now he's going to address not just everybody, but now to those who are not married and widows. Verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And I'm sure there's a lot of good things that could be said on that, but let's keep moving. Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I... But the Lord, now this is what I'm saying. He's quoting Jesus. What we just read from Jesus, Paul has fresh in his mind. To the married people in the room, this is what Paul's explanation of Jesus' teaching is. A wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Pause. What's it seem like he's interpreting from Jesus? That there's all kinds of good reasons to get divorced? Or like, no, you should not get divorced. But And then if you do get divorced, you should reconcile. Or else remain unmarried and not get remarried. Remarriage would be then adultery in the teaching of Jesus. Now verse 12. He was just talking in verse 10 to the married. Now he's talking to the rest. And again, quoting Jesus. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. We're not quoting Jesus at this point, so sorry. To be clear, in verse 12, he just quoted Jesus, and now in verse 12, he's saying, now Jesus didn't say this, but he's now adding an, an extra additional teaching on divorce and remarriage. So, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, I'm not quoting Jesus now, is what I think he's getting at, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So it sounds pretty similar to verses 10 and 11. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay, so if some of you come to faith in Jesus while you're married as unbelievers, and one of you is a believer and one's an unbeliever, she would be like, oh, we're a mixed marriage. Well, then we should split up. He's saying, no, stay together. Keep reading. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, the The big idea, there's a lot of complexity with all of this. Hopefully you're seeing why it's such a controversial, difficult issue because some of it's just trying to understand what all this is saying. But one clear idea is if you have two people that are married, they're both not Christians, one becomes a Christian, they should stay together, period. If one of them, the unbelieving spouse, wants to initiate divorce and leave and separate because they're like, you're Christian now? Uh Uh-uh, I don't want this Jesus thing in my house. I'm out of here. See ya. He's saying, you don't have to chase them down and say, no, no, we're in a marriage covenant and I can't leave you. He's saying, let them go. And at least that much is clear. After that, there's all kinds of controversy as to, well, can they then get remarried or not, etc. So let's move to the second question, second point. We've now read what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage. What does it mean? What does it mean? In general, broad brushstrokes, and more specifically for us, What does this teaching that has been read mean? And my hope here is not to answer all of your individual specific questions, but to give you three bigger points, okay? So let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. It would be useful for all of you, I think, to see this in your Bibles. So let's go back to Matthew 5, page 810. And I believe what Jesus is doing, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, because that's our key text, but by reading these other texts, I think it gives the more fuller, broader picture, but let's understand, what is Jesus doing here, and how does that help us with the rest of those passages as well? Here's three basic ideas of what I think he's doing. Number one, he is explaining Matthew 5.20. Look down at Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All through this entire section, he is giving illustrations about how your righteousness should surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. So when we get to this section, let's not forget that that's what he's doing, and he is explaining and illustrating how this applies in the area of divorce. The Pharisees had a view of divorce and remarriage. There was debates and discussions. They had one of those views. He's saying that his teaching goes beyond what their view was. Number two, he is explaining what he means in Matthew 5.17. What's Matthew 5.17 say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is telling you that the Old Testament law, the heart of it, the main goal of the Old Testament law, will not be done away with, but it will be fulfilled through his teaching and through his accomplishment by dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, and pouring out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which Christians all around the world are celebrating today, the day of Pentecost. He's saying that your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees because you have the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, because it will fulfill the intent of the Old Testament law, and his teaching is going to fulfill that intent. Which then brings us to number three. Well, what is the intent and spirit of the Old Testament law that Jesus is picking up on? And if there was one very clear, simple way to sum it up, I'd say, the Old Testament law that is being fulfilled in the teaching of Jesus is to protect women from oppression. Certainly, we could also add to that to have a high view of the commitment between a man and a woman in divorce, uh, with, by his teaching on divorce and in covenant faithfulness to marriage. But if there was one thing I were to highlight that is normally not highlighted in this teaching, it is that the Old Testament law was given to protect women who were being oppressed. Jesus is fulfilling that by his teaching on divorce and remarriage. So, spell that out. What do you mean? Deuteronomy 24 was read earlier in the service, right? And I said, this is crucial if you're gonna understand Jesus' teaching. Go back to Matthew 5, look down at the verse, and notice, it was also said, now he's gonna quote Deuteronomy 24, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's the key phrase, and if you know anything, all you have to do is say a short little phrase, and you get the rest of the idea. So if I say 9-11, do I also need to say 9-11 September 11th terrorist attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C., and the plane that fell in, Philadelphia in uh, Pennsylvania. Or you're like, no, we, we kind of got it just from 9-11. Do you under- see, what, see what I'm saying here? This phrase was so debated and so discussed and so hot topic that all you got to do is say a little phrase like 9-11, and you would, you would get kind of the broader context. You would know that there was a debate, there was a discussion going on, and Jesus is entering into that with just this phrase that he's saying here. It's the same thing that happens in Matthew 19 that we read. It's the same thing that happens in Mark 10 that we read. So what's Deuteronomy 24 all about? And we know that the debate is about this phrase, a matter of indecency. So if you want, I'd encourage you, let's go back to Deuteronomy 24 one more time. Deuteronomy 24, found on page 165. The key area of debate is in the first sentence. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So first thing you need to notice is that phrase, find some indecency in her. What does that mean? And that was the debate. One school of thought said indecency because the original Hebrew word was nakedness is talking about sexual sin, sexual immorality. That was the conservative view. If you would like to know about that Jewish sect and rabbi, it was Shammai. The Shammai group was conservative. View number one, just sexual immorality like adultery. If she committed adultery, then that was indecent. And therefore, you could write a certificate of divorce and then get remarried. And then she could get remarried. Another view, view number two, which was the more popular view held by the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees was from the Hillel Jewish group. Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. Hillel. He was a rabbi and he was very popular and he taught that this passage gave two reasons for divorce. One was any matter and indecency. So he took the original Hebrew phrase, which you don't see very clearly in the English here, but it is for a matter of indecency, and he split into two parts. And he said, any matter or indecency. And there is quotations. I could, I've I've read them, I've looked them up. If you'd like to see them, there is quotations of these Jewish Rabbis and scribes saying that if she burns your soup, that is a matter of indecency, you can divorce her. If she no longer looks attractive to you, that's a good enough reason. You can write her certificate of divorce, and then it's all good. So that's the, the debate in Jesus day. In Moses day, there was also the issue of rampant divorce. And he's trying to rein it in because if you read the rest of Deuteronomy 24, and it's a bit convoluted or whatever, but here's the the basic idea. If you're living in an ancient Near Eastern culture where women have very few rights, they don't have very much dignity and respect, unlike what the Bible's teaching about man being made in God's image, man, male and female, that is. Humanity should see both men and women with respect. They did not. And men would just divorce their wives And so just imagine this kind of scenario. Husbands, you go out with your buddies, and you see somebody. You're like, oh, wow, they're beautiful. I'm going to just go off with them. And then you never come home. And then imagine your wife. And she's got her her children. She's got bills to pay. And let's let's imagine she stays at home because in, in this culture, back in the day, they weren't making the money. Most of the time, they were very dependent on the men providing for the family, and so now they're they're left dry. And here's what would happen many times. That man would then say, well, if she gets remarried, then I can go back to that first wife, so I'm going to now have two wives legally, and I'm now going to get all that she has And I'm going to abuse the system and even get the dowry that was paid for her second marriage and all that she owns from that marriage and basically just accumulate wives and wealth by abusing the divorce system in the day of Moses. That would be my kind of shorthand summary of what Moses is dealing with in Deuteronomy 24 to say, listen, to temper and stop the abuse on women If you leave your wife, you have to write her certificate of divorce and you cannot go back and take from her and and take her back. So that then protects the woman to then be able to get remarried with a new man and then be able to have financial stability and security from that husband who just left her. Do Do you see what's going on in Deuteronomy 24? It is protecting women. The only other passage that we have, and you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it to you, about kind of divorce, remarriage issues. Write this down if you want. Exodus 21.10. And here's what it says. If a man takes a wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. In other words, the two main teachings that you have in the Old Testament are about protecting and caring for women. In the Old Testament law. And if Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and says, I'm not abolishing the law, I want to fulfill the law. I want to uphold the value and dignity of men respecting women, because that's the intent and the heart and the spirit of the Old Testament law. So when he gets to Matthew chapter 5, and he says, Also, by the way, men, if you lust after a woman and you cause her to chase after you and commit adultery, or if you lust after her, whichever way we take that interpretation. But either way, it's this idea of men. You're preying on women in a lustful way. That's first part of it. Second part, if, you, if you're taking the Hillel position of just you can divorce her for any matter, like burned soup, or she just doesn't look as good as the girl down the street, then I want you to know that is making her commit adultery. Making her commit adultery. Did you catch that in our text? Why doesn't it just say, that's sinful? You leave your wife? Well, that's wrong. Don't do it. Instead, he says, you're making her commit adultery. What does that mean? Most likely, it means that if you leave your spouse except for what's probably the more conservative, except for immorality. He's probably interpreting the indecency clause in Matthew 5:31. He's saying that nakedness phrase, that's, that's the right interpretation, except for when she is unfaithful. Then you need to know that you're leaving her out and her only other option is prostitution or remarriage and both of those are adultery. You're giving her no other choice. Remember, don't read this in 21st century eyes. Read this as an ancient Near Eastern woman or a first century woman. And remember that you have no rights. Women, we've come a long way, at least in America, to give you more rights and voting privileges and dignity and respect. And I think this is good. Praise God. I'm not promoting, like, liberal feminist agenda here. I'm, I'm promoting the agenda of Jesus, which upholds the value and dignity of all humans, male and female. And that's, in fact, what I think Jesus is doing in his teaching. So what is he doing? He is fulfilling the law. He is illustrating that the Pharisees' view of divorce and remarriage was way, way too lenient. And your righteousness should exceed that. The Pharisees did not view. The common view would have been the Hillel view. And this is why, again, if you're struggling with this, are you sure? Read Matthew 19 more carefully. And when you read it, you notice that they ask the question about this debatable text. And then Jesus gives his answer about the heart of the law is permanence and marriages staying together. And they're like, what? And the disciples, even in verse 10, say, Jesus, this teaching is hard. Nobody should get married now. If we really got to stay with our spouse forever, well, that's awful. Because if I'm B.B. Warfield and my wife gets paralyzed on my honeymoon, I want a way out That's what the disciples are saying. But then who should get married if you're stuck in it for life? Ah, Read Matthew 19. You will get that spirit in Matthew 19 when you read it that way. And Jesus is telling us, no, 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 no. Do you realize what society would look like if men start treating women like this and just do whatever they want with their lustful eyes and with their flippant divorces? That's, I think, the spirit and heart behind what Jesus is doing. And that's why I said he is explaining the spirit of the law he is not abolishing the law. He is right in line with the Old Testament protection of women. And he is illustrating that the Pharisees' righteousness was so superficial, it was so much about finding little loopholes in the Old Testament law. Well, if I read it this way, matter of indecency, and I split that out, okay. and like, That's not the way to read the Bible. That's not the way for you right now as we think, okay, how does this apply to you? How many people come to pastors and churches and say, listen, I want to know if I can get a divorce. Can you help me find a way in the Bible for that to happen? That's when you say, pause, time out. That's not what we're doing here. The stance of this church is not to say, yes, let's promote more divorce in the world. Even if your spouse commits adultery, you may biblically have good grounds to get a divorce. That's true. Most churches in the world teach that. This church, by the way, on the back table, if you want, this is our summary, one page. It's not that long, and it shows kind of what we summarize all these teachings, and this is when you can and can't get a divorce. If you want to read that, you can pick it up on the back table. There will be times where the elders of this church might say, listen, the marriage is dead, and yes, you have grounds to get a divorce, but we would do that reluctantly because it seems the whole message and intent of 1 Corinthians 7, the whole message and intent of Jesus, what does he start out with in this Sermon on the Mount section? Saying, reconcile immediately. Reconciliation and repentance and forgiveness is the core teaching of the Christian community who have God's spirit in them. So the spirit of this church about divorce and remarriage should be repentance and reconciliation. Not, well, yeah, yeah. There's a little exception clause in there. Let's just use it as often as we can, or let's find loopholes and figure out every single way that anybody, if they're unhappy, let's just get a divorce real quick, which begs all kinds of questions and problems, doesn't it? Some people are might thinking, so does that mean that I sinned because I got a divorce? Maybe. Does that mean that this is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin that God will never love you and you'll never be a faithful member of the Jesus community. Absolutely not. That's never said anywhere in the Bible. That's just crazy talk. Every sin is forgivable by repentant people. You repent of sins of divorce and remarriage that commit adultery, Jesus shows much grace. And so one way to sum this up might be to say, even if divorce was the best option for you in the past or even if divorce is the best option for you in the future and there are biblical grounds for you to have that divorce and you walked with people in your church community and the pastors and elders and they're helping you think through it like this isn't a flippant decision you don't just do this and say oh yeah just yeah I'm done like that's not the spirit of Jesus is it you do this in community with people and even if that's the conclusion you come to it's still not the still not a good option. Even if there are biblical grounds for divorce, I want you to hear that it seems from reading Jesus that's still not a good option. It's because of the hardness of heart that provisions for divorce were given. It's because of sin that divorce happens. Divorce is destructive on marriages and families and communities. It's painful. It hurts. It's never a good situation, whether it's being done to you or you are initiating it. And hopefully I don't need to illustrate that too much. And what's so sad is that it seems like that's the opposite message that we're hearing all around us all the time. So as a church, if we want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus and a superior righteousness beyond the Pharisees, I think in some we should have a high view of marriage. We should fight for marriages and constantly say the first thing that you want to teach is not about divorce and remarriage when somebody's thinking about divorce. It's about reconciliation and repentance. That's the first thing we need to talk through is to make sure that all options have been exhausted and much prayer has been given into it. And then at the end, if that's what it comes to, then you eventually say, yes, it seems as if this is the decision that might be the best of two bad options. If our righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees, we shouldn't be people that are looking for loopholes in the Bible so that we can just quickly get what we want like the Pharisees. We should have a high view and dignity of women and not tolerate abusive husbands. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully I don't lose it here. But could you imagine, like, hearing all that I've said about what's the spirit of the Old Testament laws that Jesus is fulfilling in his teaching? Don't abuse women. That's kind of the point. Men are abusing women with their divorce practices, so don't abuse them. And do you realize that Christians today have such strict, narrow views of divorce and remarriage that they're letting men who abuse their wife physically or sexually or verbally stay in those abusive environments because of what they think Jesus is teaching? Like, could you do the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching? Now, I'm sure they mean well, and they're trying to read the scriptures faithfully and say oh no jesus has a strict view and yet he does have a strict view compared to his day but there is no chance ever in this church will your elders be the kind of people that are going to allow women to be in abusive relationships and just say well stick it out ladies oh god protect us from that and ladies if you are in that i have said this time and time again from this pulpit when this issue comes up if you are afraid to share please don't be afraid please share with me or the elders or a trusted friend and share let us know about it. Domestic violence in this country, praise God, is illegal, and I would like for your husband to be put in jail, or some sort of separation act and restraining order put on him. Does that mean we go through all the steps and processes of divorce right away? Not necessarily. We can still pray for repentance and reconciliation, but we're going to separate, and we're going to protect, and we're going to uphold the dignity and beauty of women. That surpasses the righteousness of Pharisees. And it takes a whole church community when stuff like this happens, doesn't it? A whole church community needs to gather around a hurting woman to give her emotional support, a listening ear, practically care for her. Needs a lot of strong men. And I mean that literally, just men that will say, I will protect you. You can stay at my house and your husband will not come and do anything to you and I will make sure that happens. That, that's the kind of church that I think embraces the body and message of Jesus. We should follow this spirit and teaching and apply it, I think, in a case-by-case manner. This is such a big issue that I'm telling you, yes, we have a one-page sheet, but let me point your attention to one of the things on this sheet. Church members should meet with their elders to help them determine when it is appropriate to separate or divorce. Meaning... There will be no harder thing that we will do than help people walk through these issues and determine what the best steps are in each part of the process than helping people think through those matters. There there will not be anything more difficult than that for us as elders. So I don't think it serves us right now for me to just put all these, well, in this scenario, you should do this, and in this scenario, you should do this. It's so case-by-case every single time our encouragement is to talk prayerfully, repeatedly, sometimes for hours and hours and hours, working through what's the right thing to do because one path that Jesus is teaching is going to lead to life and one is going to lead to destruction. And we know that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the narrow road, the path that the world is not often taking, is the path that he's calling us to. So have you found that narrow road and are you willing to go down it even though it might cost us as a church community a lot of time and energy and you might think it's just easy well it's just easier I'll just get a divorce and get remarried that's not that's not an easy quick solution take for example this week's news as the the narrow road that we're being called to in this message compared to the wide path that leads to destruction other than the school shooting in Texas probably the other largest thing I saw on news all week was a wedding yesterday, right? And pictures of how wonderful and beautiful and glorious it was celebrating this wedding. Well, the Washington Post wrote something earlier in the week. It said, when Prince Harry and Meghan Markle stand before the altar at St. George Chapel at the Windsor Castle, the Archbishop of Canterbury will tie the knot with the vows from the Book of Common Prayer that reads, to have and to hold until death do us part. But what not too many people realize is that not very long ago, this wedding and this service, with this officiant presiding over it at this place, would have been impossible. Not because Meghan Markle is an American and a commoner, and is marrying a prince who is the sixth from the line of the throne. And not because she is an actress, or she is biracial, or because she was an Episcopalian and attended a Catholic school. No, the reason that this would have been opposed by the Church of England and the Archbishop is because Meghan Markle was divorced from her former husband, the Hollywood producer, Trevor Ingelson And he is still alive. As one Anglican priest who is an expert An authority on this issue says, oh, this would have been a no-no several years ago. Harry and Markle's ceremony yesterday was the first full-blown royal wedding of a divorced partner to take place with the loving embrace of the English church. Rather than voicing opposition, the man, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was doing the wedding, expressed his great joy at their upcoming nuptials and said, I am so happy that Prince Harry and Miss Markle have chosen to make their vows before God, said the Reverend Justin Welby. Now, I do not know anything about their divorce. I do not want to pronounce judgment per se and jump to conclusions, but I'd like to illustrate that when you read this article and you continue reading it, what they are doing is celebrating the great progress of the Anglican Church to move beyond that old terrible law of Jesus in the New Testament it's essentially what the whole article is that was just the introduction and the whole thing was about showing the history of the Anglican church and eventually in 2002 they eventually allowed for divorce and remarriage in the church and now that's why that wedding was possible in the way it was done yesterday do you see that the wide path is saying anybody get divorced anybody get remarried And let's not just allow it, let's celebrate it as progress for our world and society. The reason why we should follow Jesus is not just because, well, there it is in the Bible, there's the rule, and we are rule followers. The reason we should follow Jesus is because Jesus is worthy of our trust. His laws are good as they are the reflection of all the laws of the Old Testament, the spirit and heart of them, the principle of them. And so we should align our lives with the vision that he has for the world. And it is not rampant divorce and remarriage. So lastly, we've seen what Jesus says. We've seen what I think Jesus means. I would like to conclude by saying how does Jesus respond to divorced people If you're in the room and you've been divorced, you've had sexual sin, whether you were divorced for right reasons, wrong reasons, lawful, unlawful, how does Jesus in the Bible respond to you? I'd like to remind you of a story where Jesus is at a well. In John chapter four, starting in verse seven, you can read a story about Jesus getting water out of a well. And there's a woman there in the middle of the day by herself. And Jesus asks for her to draw him some water. And she draws water. And he tells her, I'd like you to know that I have a water that will quench your thirst and you will never be thirsty again. It will fulfill all your desires and needs and bring great and deep satisfaction. And the woman says, Whoa, where do you get that kind of water? I want some. Give me some of that water. That sounds good. And Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. What? I want some of that living water. Go get your husband. That seems a little off, but it wasn't. Keep reading the story. And she says, I don't have a husband. She says, yeah, that's, that's right. You've actually had about four husbands. And the fifth one that you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, Wow, I perceive you must be a prophet. (laughs) And Jesus begins to explain to her that he is the living water, that she has been looking. For love and fulfillment and satisfaction in all of these different marriages and husbands, and all along, all along, Jesus has been the one, God has been the one that can find that fulfillment and satisfaction in. In other words, if you have been divorced, you should know that every time Jesus interacts with divorced people or sexual immoral people, Man, does he show them such, such grace, such love and forgiveness, and offers them what they were looking for in all of those other ventures in their life. So Embassy Church, are we going to be like Jesus and treat divorced people in our community like they have a big D on their forehead or treat them like Jesus does? Men in the church, Will we uphold the teaching of Jesus and the spirit of the Old Testament law and not just love our sisters in Christ in the room, but support them and care for them and protect them? Will we make the innocent feel more guilty and just assume that everybody that was divorced did something terribly wrong? Now, I'm sure that in every marriage, everybody has their share, but sometimes people have somebody just leave them like, I don't even know what I did. They just left. Embassy Church, are we going to see marriage as everything? Marriage in this life now as the, the ultimate joy and satisfaction of our human existence on the earth? Or will we see Jesus as the living water? As the thing that quenches the thirst? And married couples, would you like to stay out of not getting a divorce if you want to honor jesus teaching well then don't put the pressure on your spouse to be everything that jesus could only be for you the reason we get into these difficult conversations about divorce and remarriage is most often because we're looking for our spouse to fulfill for us the thing that only jesus could provide so let us consider Jesus' response to divorced people and remarried people and sexual sinners and let's preach a message of grace of love of reconciliation of forgiveness of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit of the Lord who has ascended to the right hand of the Father whom we obey even when sometimes we don't like it and even when it's difficult because the whole world is saying something else. May God give us that grace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I am.